You're listening to Hooked on Creek, a podcast celebrating the music, history, and fans of the legendary jam band, Max Creek. I am your host, Corey Johnson, and you are listening to episode 33. Take your time to call me. You can take your time. Cause I'm not worth it. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Hooked on Creek, featuring an extended conversation with Scott Morowski. Scott has been playing guitar and singing in Max Creek since 1972, and in this episode, Scott talks extensively about performing, recording, and writing music with Max Creek and the dedicated fans that support the band. Scott and I also talk about his guitars, recording gear, playing with Bill Kreutzmann, and the meaning behind the song Leaves, among many other things. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, so sit back, relax and take it all in. This is a good one. But first, I want to remind you that you can get more information about this episode and read an entire transcript of my interview with Scott Morowski on the Hooked on Creek website. Just go to hookedoncreek.com and while you're there, click the contact link and let me know what you think. All right, we have a lot to cover, so let's get started. Scott Morowski, welcome to Hooked on Creek. Hey, Corey. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. First, I just want to thank you and the band for everything you did at Camp Creek. It was such an incredible weekend. Everything was perfect, and it was amazing for me to be part of that experience with all the other Creek Freaks celebrating Max Creek. So thank you so much for putting on that weekend. It was amazing. Oh, well, thanks for thanks for coming to it. Scott, did you have a lot of fun at Camp Creek? I did have a lot of fun. It was like a little subdued because of the COVID thing, and I didn't. I was concerned about how much I wanted to expose myself to lots of people in close proximity, that kind of thing. So, but besides that, it was certainly a blast. The music, the music was a blast and yeah, it's very, it's very cool. Well, I I wasn't there on Thursday night, but the weather for Friday, Saturday and Sunday was just perfect. It was just beautiful to be there. So thanks. Thursday was interesting. (laughs) I heard it rained. (laughs) It rained. It did. And, uh, you know, the, the roof of the stage is pretty high, and they had set up, like, pop-up tents underneath the roof of the stage for us to be under, you know, as a double extra layer of protection from the from the wetness or whatever. And uh, and so it changed, how, like, how the stage sounds and everything, because everything's very close now or whatever. It was really cool, actually. And um, we pulled out a bunch of nuggets. We dug deep. And, you know, we, we played stuff that we haven't played in a hundred years and did without any rehearsal whatsoever. And I'm actually rather impressed at how much stuff we could pull out that we hadn't done in a long time. And, and that actually worked and didn't train wreck. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, when you are about to go on stage and perform in Max Creek, what types of thoughts are typically going through your head as you walk up on stage and you look out at that crowd? What are you thinking? (laughs) I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm thinking. There's various stages of things that I think before I go on. I actually have for, you know, for other projects that are more nerve-wracking. I actually have like a 
a hit list of, of things that I have to think in order to influence my playing in a way that I like, like, like just ways to give myself hints as to the kind of attitude that I want to have in order to project what I want to project kind of a thing. You know, it's the differences with Creek. It's like, I've been doing it for almost 50 years. It's only 49 for me, but it's so relaxed and so natural. And so most of what I'm thinking when going on stage with Creek is, what can I, how can I make what we've been doing all these years interesting somehow? You know what I mean? I'm thinking, what tunes do I want to do? What tunes? And, you know, when we don't do a set list and so, because I, I like to feel it out by the moment, like what's what feels right right now. And, and so, so I, so I don't know. So I think about things like, like that, like how can I fuck this up in some way? How, you know, what, what kind of things I, can I do to make it so that this song that I've played thousands of times for a hundred years how can I make it so that it's interesting, you know? And so then as the show goes on, talk about that relationship that you have or the band has with the crowd. I mean, are you being influenced by the crowd? Are you seeing things in the crowd or tracking people in the crowd as the show goes on? Feeling the energy of the crowd. I mean, it's a, it's a two-way street. Everything gets amplified every time it goes around, you know what I mean? So we put out something and the crowd reacts to that and then we react to that and they react to that, you know what I mean? It's like an endless kind of cycle of feeding energy. Yeah. So sometimes when I listen to Max Creek shows, I'm hearing the crowd throw out requests and sometimes you guys will ask the audience, you know, what do you want to hear next? I'm curious, are there songs that you wish the audience would request that they never do? <laughs> no, there's songs that they requested. I wish they never did. But no, um, no, that's not even true either. It's funny because when, when we say that, hey, what do you want to hear? I'm like, I, it just turns into a cacophony of sound, right? Like everybody's saying different things. And so I find myself reading lips of like, do I know what, that's, what song that person's saying or whatever? And so... So yeah, so what was the what was the first part of that question? Like for me, I, I would imagine I I maybe lock eyes with somebody in the crowd and then just maybe look at them or kind of track them as the show goes on because there's a lot of interesting people in the crowd and maybe that's fun to do too. <laughs> the crowd is definitely interesting. I really like it. Like I can tell when there's a guitar player watching me, and so I like fucking with their, their head a little bit. You know what I mean? If I can, if if I feel like they're watching me and they know what's going on, I like. To, switch things up, change things up. I used to have a delay rack, and so I don't anymore, at least not controllable like that, where where it would look like I played a note, and then you'd hear the note come out. And so I would I would do that to people that watch me play. But there's that, and then there's a, another aspect. You look out there, and you see somebody who's not reacting. You see somebody who's just kind of with their head cocked to one side, and they're just, you know, they're like evaluating. And it's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win this person. You know what I mean? I'm going to win this person over. You know, that, there's that that goes on. I mean, yeah, it's cool. It's fun. Well, one of the most incredible things I've picked up from listening to you play in Max Creek is just how easy it seems to be for you to play different styles or genres of music and play them so well. Maybe that's what makes you such a great uh, jam band, right? But I'm wondering, is that music versatility something that you've worked on over the years or has it come naturally to you? That's a good question. When I joined Max Creek, I was not listening to country. I was not listening to bluegrass. I was not listening to the dead. I was listening to, I don't know, classic rock of the time. I was listening to, you know, Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and, and um, the Beatles and I don't know, whatever else, Steppenwolf, whatever. That's kind of where I was. And then like when, when I joined them, they were a three-piece country rock band and they were they were doing like 
you know, like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and uh, what else? And they were doing some. They were doing some Woody Guthrie, and they were doing they were like traditional stuff and and country rock stuff and and bluegrass. And so playing with them was kind of my first foray into all that stuff. Like I went the first time I. I went to the Max Creek house and jammed it was just me and the guitar player and the drummer and the drummer also played harp and so they started playing some bluegrass stuff and I started doing all these blues licks over the top of it and they were like no 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 no, you gotta play major major you gotta play major pentatonic not minor pentatonic I'm like oh okay so I kind of had to learn bluegrass in order to play with them kind of a thing so that kind of like being versed in that and then you know as a musician, you're always trying to broaden your horizons, and especially in a band that jams, you, you have to pay attention to jazz because th- there's a lot of jazz influence in the whole jamming thing. And so, the, and that is kind of like broadening, you know, your ears and broadening your mind as far as how all the theory goes and playing in that style. And so, you can hear a lot more things. And then, so I don't know, I just play all the kinds of music that I like, I guess. And I try to stay somewhat current in the band i've always been the guy that pushes the pushes the different ideas like when i brought uh, songs like pissed off in it was like i wrote the song as like a joke i'm writing it like okay i'm gonna write a punk rock song and it's gonna be a joke and i wrote the song and then they heard it and they were like oh we gotta do this you know and so it's always been somewhat of a thing where i want to push the boundaries anyway and so i always try to stay current i listen to some pop just to stay current there you know like what the current sounds and plus i have a recording studio down here and so i try to stay current with technology and listen to various productions and and learn that aspect of the thing and so and my wife has very different musical tastes than i do she's she's she has three daughters that worked in record stores at different times in their lives and they all have very broad musical tastes and they turn me on to things that i normally wouldn't stumble onto and so well for me max creek's ability to improvise and continually reinvent songs through deep spacey and beautiful jams is what keeps me coming back for more so I'm curious. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, <laughs> what does it feel like to be in the flow of a jam, to be in that zone when everything is clicking and the music is building and evolving on itself? What does that feel like? Um, when it's working, it's kind of like a, an out-of-body experience. When it's working the way it's supposed to work, it's it's going straight from like intuitive feeling right to the fingers without without any like intellectual thought behind it you know what i mean it's like it bypasses that and i can almost be a spectator and enjoy it you know the fact that it's just happening without me thinking about it you know what i mean and those those other those moments are are rare but not as rare as you would think but that's the kind of the goal of it all is to get to that place where you're not where you're not thinking about it and you're just you know, you're like flowing along with it. Your body's flowing along with it, and you can just watch the whole thing go down. If that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Um, in my interview with Bob Gosselin, he talked about a time when he went to a Grateful Dead show at Dillon Stadium with other members of the band, and he said he had a very profound experience on a couple levels. And it sounded like attending that Dead show might have been a pretty influential moment for the band. So I'm curious, what do you think? Well, first of all, do you remember that? And do you think going to see Grateful Dead early on in the band's career was an influential turning point for the band and jamming? So I think 
the the members of the band went to Watkins Glen, that, and that was their first experience with with the dead. And I remember that being a profound experience for them. I was too young to go at the time. I was fifteen at the time, and so. But I remember them coming back, and and playing a lot of Grateful Dead records after that. And we had what was interesting was a lot of the traditional tunes that they were doing, the Woody Guthrie stuff. We were doing, you know, in our own flavor. And then we heard them do it, and it's like, oh, that's kind of cool the way they do it or whatever and so yeah it was it was a profound influence i would say on on most of us i would i would i would phrase it that way well on all of us i would say on all of us and so my first dead experience came after that the year after that and so and that was a profound experience for me it was also my first mushroom experience which which aided things you know aided to the to the profoundness of it so what year is this 74. 1974 is a good year. <laughs> it is a good year. It's very, you know, they were in, they were sing, single drummer at that point. So the jams were very free and they were very long. And it's one, it's like my favorite year of, of dead. And so, yeah, so that was a major influence. And, and we started covering a lot of dead songs, but there's only one guitar player in Max Creek. And so it has to be interpretive when you play a dead song because you can't possibly cover all the parts that are there because there's two guitar players and so and I think we kind of did our own thing with them anyway and gave them the, gave them the dead stuff our own energy when we were covering it you know and so there used to be a lot more dead in the repertoire but then at the same time we all started writing more and so there were more originals coming into the into, into the repertoire as well to make a long story short we kind of like stopped doing the, the dead material and focused on the originals um at, at a certain point it was like okay we need to push you know us out there and so and it, we still cover the dead in our own unique way i think but they, they were definitely influential they were influential as to like not trying to mimic the style but more to the freedom of what they were doing you know and you know, listening to how they jammed taught me how to listen to music when I play. Yes, it was. they were a great influence. A great influence. So as a fan of The Grateful Dead, it must have been special to play with Bill Kreutzmann. And I'm wondering, how did the two of you first meet? And what led you guys to start playing together? We first met in Costa Rica. Mike... Gordon from Fish had gone out to Hawaii and, and uh, did a gig with uh, Kreutzmann and Steve Kimmock in Hawaii. And while he was out there doing that, he was texting me and saying, oh man, this is so good. This is so good. You know, we got to do this. We got to do this. And so, um, so he arranged for us to play at a benefit for the schools in Costa Rica. And so it was put on at this in, in Hako, which is like a, a beach surf kind of town. And we'd put it on at this resort that had this big like area in the middle of it all. What had, that was like, it was like grass and palm trees and everything. And there was, a, they set up a stage there or whatever. And so it was really weird. It was a really weird experience for me, you know, having never met Kreutzmann before. And actually, you know, we, we, we were all three of us were supposed to meet at the airport and get picked up in it's an hour and a half drive to Hako from the airport and so and we got there and Mike's plane was delayed so it's like me and Billy in the in the car you know and uh 
like, you know, hi, Bill. <laughs> you know, I'm Scott. And so we had this ride for an hour and a half in the car together where we just, I just got to shoot the shit with him. And I was so nervous. It was so out of body experience kind of thing, you know, like, and it was very cool. And we started, you know, Mike finally made it down and we started rehearsing uh, the next day. And it, and it just felt like once I got over the nerve, nerves part of it, it was, it was super comfortable. And so, yeah. And so that's, that's how that came to be. And then at the end of it, Bill really had a good time and went to Mike and said, we should, we should do this more. And Mike was like, I, I can't do this more. I have other things I want to do. And so Bill was like, well, do you mind if me and Scott do it more and find another bass player? And <clears throat> Mike was like, oh yeah, that's not a problem. And then Mike, he was like, can you recommend a bass player? And Mike thought about it for a bunch of days and said, O'Teal. And that's a whole other, that's another guy that I've never really met and super admire. And, you know, so it was weird to like be in a room rehearsing you know, with, with, the, with the two of them for the first time, you know, and be like, oh man, this is, un- this is unbelievable. I'm like dreaming right now, you know? And then we did, a, we did a song, I think we did, I don't remember what we did, Eyes of the World maybe, and then jammed for 45 minutes. And that was the first thing we did. And at the end of it, it was like, oh yeah, this works, this works. I've heard recordings of you performing a song called Pollyanna a couple times, including with Bill Kreutzman and also with Max Creek. Did you write that song or co-write it? I was trying to find the history of it. And I, I couldn't figure out where it came from, but I like it. I just didn't know where that came from. In playing with BK3 with uh, Bill and O'Teal, Bill went to Robert Hunter and asked him if he had any lyrics lying around. And Robert Hunter sent us uh, a dozen songs, lyrics. And so um, we got together and we wrote music for all of them. And then a limited number of them we played out. And so Pollyanna's a... I wrote the music for that over Robert Hunter's lyrics. That's great. That must have been pretty special to to have his lyrics in your music, right? Yeah, it's very cool. Definitely. It's intimidating a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, when Max Creek formed in 1971, as I understand it, it was a year later in 1972, when you were just 15, that you got an invitation from Dave Reed to to sit in with Max Creek. Tell me about what you remember of Dave Reed at that time and your relationship with him and anything about just those very first experiences in this band. Dave Reed was became my trumpet teacher when I was in fifth grade, when I was like 11 years old. And so at that point, I'd known him for you know, four or five years. And um, he was great. Like, he, as a trumpet teacher, there was a point where he said, okay, we're going to put down the horns and we're not going to play trumpet for three months. We're going to talk about music theory. And that was like the best thing that ever could have happened to me right then and there because I was still young. And this is like, this is before the whole Max Creek thing. This is like when I was, you know, 11 or 12 or whatever. And, and just teaching me the basic concepts of how music works was just the most amazing thing. And so he and I have always, and still have a good relationship. Like he, he he's a great guy uh, and he's very knowledgeable and, and he's very good musician. That's just a wonderful thing for me to have his influence at, you know, at a young age. And so then he heard me play the guitar and he said, well, you should come. <clears throat> he didn't ask me to sit in. He asked me to go over and just jam with him and, and Bob, the, the drummer, and so we, I did that, and then he, and then they, 
talked it over and said, ah, you should come to a Max Creek rehearsal, you know. And so, and the, the Max Creek house was actually in the town that I grew up in. So this was all happening, you know, a couple miles away from where I grew up. And so the big day of the of the rehearsal came and I was going to meet the mysterious bass player, you know, John Ryder, you know, and like, it's like this whole thing. And he pulls up in his Thunderbird and he's got the sunglasses and the headband and the long hair. And it's like, it was this whole thing, you know. So I was super intimidated. And then, uh, and, did the rehearsal and they were like yeah okay so why don't you come out and play on a handful of songs you can be like the prodigy kid guitar player or whatever so that's what i did so and so yeah dave reed also gave me like like i've had tape recorders since i was eight years old since my brother went into the service and he gave me his his pentron seven inch reel to reel this big mammoth tape recorder you know so i've always recorded myself playing music or you know trying to record myself playing music or whatever and so Dave Reed also gave me a two-track reel-to-reel that actually had, could record one track at a time and I, well, I just went nuts with that and made this that's when I started like really getting into the recording and then I got you can see it back here uh the the four channel reel-to-reel and that's what I wrote almost everything creek on between 1976 and 1991 so Dave Reed an influence in that respect by teaching me how to do minimal overdubbing on recording and everything and getting me going in that direction. What did your parents or family think of you as a teenager pursuing this hobby and, and getting into a band? Was that, uh, do they approve of that? They were always encouraging, even, you know, when my grades started to go downhill because who the fuck wants to do high school when you're in a rock band, you know? But they always encouraged my music and were supportive of that. Because they had met Dave Reed when I was 11 years old and he was still in high school and everything, you know, my they had my parents had a rapport with him too and they so they trusted him and figured that if I was going with him that I that it was wholesome and wonderful and nice and and it was not. <laughs> but it was cool. They were cool with him. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll take a step back here and look at the big picture. Are you surprised Max Freak is still together after all this time? Does that ever surprise you? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Were there, t- <laughs> were there times throughout the last 49 or 50 years where it might not have made it, but you did? And if so, what kept the band together through that? Well, there was a time when I quit the band. When I started having children, I was looking for more security. Like MTV is really big and happening. And I look at MTV and then I look at what we're doing and I'm thinking, are we ever really going to be able to be anything that's super successful with a lot of longevity or anything? And so so I got the day job. Before I even got the day job, I told them, I'm like, look, I'm looking for work. And there was one place that was hiring and it was hiring on weekends. And so I told them that I was going to get this, that if I got this job, that I was gonna not gonna be able to play, so I got the job, and I didn't get the job that I went for. They were like, I was going for like this operations job, you know, where you basically, you know, take care of the computers at night, kind of a thing, and over the weekend. And they said, well, you know, I was always dabbling in computers, and so when I on my resume, you know, I put all the dabbling that I had done, and they said, well, why don't you take the programmer's test? And so I took the programmer's test and got a good good enough score that they hired me as a programmer during the weekdays, and so I had to go back to the band and say, so I'm not working weekends, I'm working weekdays, and if you guys wanted to do things on the weekends, I'd be willing to do that as long as they weren't too crazy. So yeah, that was a point when it was on the brink, 
and it survived. And it actually became, I don't know, I can only speak for myself. I don't think this is true for the other members of the band. But at that point, like all through the 80s, our schedule was just grueling, just grueling. Like we were just always playing and we're always driving. We're never like, you know, where everything is all on, on the East Coast and it's just these endless weekends of driving. And, and to make payroll, we incorporated and we had a payroll and it was like, oh, we got to play this empty shithole on Tuesday night because we got to make payroll, you know. And, and it was just grueling and it became like playing music just to pay the bills kind of a thing. And and so when that whole thing happened, when I got the job and it went to to more of a part-time thing that started to become my escape again it was like i looked forward to it i get to escape out of my reality and and do this thing and so it made it better i guess it made it so that people weren't living off of it and therefore it wasn't it wasn't a grind it became something that was here's a creative outlet for us instead of the grind i guess i don't know how do you account for what these Creek Freaks have become and who they are and how devoted they are to this band? How did that happen? Is it something that the band has been you know, trying to, to manipulate and build over time or just happen on its own? <laughs> I, I don't know that I can explain it. I mean, way, way back in the day, way, way back in the 70s, it was, it was like a statement. John Ryder made the statement that he wants Max Creek to be a place where people can come and not be afraid to be creative and not be afraid to be themselves. It's been true for us. It's been true for everybody that's come along. It's like, you know, the original fans, they're all they're all my age or older, you know what I mean? And it's definitely something that's been passed down, you know, and, you know, people come up and say, yeah, my, my parents used to come see you in the 80s and my grandparents used to come see you in the 70s. <laughs> You know, that it's definitely a thing, and I, I, I don't know. It's its own institution, I guess, bigger than all of us. It's not something that an, any band member or band collective as a group intended to happen any more than the intent of coming there to be creative and be ourselves. Yeah. I'm curious about the song Leaves. Can you tell me a little bit about the origins of that song or what inspired it? I think there's just so much raw emotion there. I just I need to know more about that song. <laughs> well, what does it mean to you? I'm asking you the question. <laughs> I would argue that whatever the song means to you currently is as valid, if not more valid, than what the song means to me. I would argue that. And that's something that I've always done that when people ask me what songs are about, as I say, well, what does it mean? You tell me what it means to you first, and then I'll tell you what it means to me. Because I think songs come from, I don't know what, other places they come from places like i don't know what they're about like when i write usually i write a bunch of music and then i put on the headphones and then i and turn on a microphone and i just close my eyes play the music and sing whatever the fuck comes out and whatever comes out comes out and you know there's been times when at the end of it all I write it all down, you know, that I, everything that I sung, and I write it down, and I look, and I go, holy shit, this all makes sense. I didn't know I had these feelings inside of me, but yeah, they, they are. It, so it comes from some other level of subconsciousness that I can't explain a lot of the times. So, I mean, uh, that said, well, are you going to tell me what it means to you? 
Well, yeah. So for me, I pick up on the metaphor of leaves and autumn and changing seasons and impermanence. Nothing is going to stay the same. Everything is going to change. And the, the life cycle of a of a tree or, or of leaves is interesting when you think about it, it grows. It sort of dies, falls off the tree. But, but in that death, it's this beautiful color that ultimately brings you around it to really admire it. And then the whole cycle starts over again, right? So that's where I, my head goes. And it's from that where I frame my thoughts about the song. <laughs> that's good. That's, that might be better than mine. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm a Libra. My birthday's in October. And so the fall always has this kind of significance for me just because of that. And for me, it is a time when I become not sentimental, but what's the other one? Nostalgic, I guess, maybe, or something. And so... So the, thinking about the words, like, the words are a little bit bitter in a way. You know what I mean? Like, there's all sorts of sarcasm dripping from the first verse. Like, take your time to call me. You can take your time because I'm not waiting. That's not the phone. My aunt's not on the phone. And I'm not waiting. It's a way to say, yes, I'm waiting for you to call me. You know what I mean? And then the chorus is just that whole autumn imagery, which you described already. You know, we're... Um, all the colors and, and leaves falling and the sky's gray and it's just this kind of, just kind of sum up your existence and reflect. And I don't know. I have no fucking idea what it's about. That's good. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> when you look back over the history of Max Creek and the different drummers you had in place, can you talk about the different strengths they had from your perspective as, as a guitar player and singer? Being a rhythm, very rhythmic oriented player and also being a closet drummer, I've always had a lot of communication with the drummer because they are so instrumental in shaping what we sound like and what my songs sound like or whatever. So there's always been a connection with every drummer and every drummer has brought something to the table that's been amazing and that I've thoroughly enjoyed and learned from. Bob, basically, I mean, I listened to the tapes from the late 70s and early 80s and listened to those recordings, and he is just so good. He's so solid during the songs, and when it cuts to the jam, he knows how to be solid and completely fluid at the same time. It's just an amazing thing. It's so expressive in what he does. So that I would say... Like, solidity and fluidities are his definite strengths. And Greg DiGuglielmo, he's super solid as well. I mean, all the drummers are very solid. I can't, there's, there's not one of them that's not solid. Greg brings this kind of fire to the way he jams, the way he interacts. Like, he definitely plays off of me. You know, like, it's a back and forth. There's a, you know, he's a, he's an Aries and so he's he's got a lot of fire in him, and it, it comes out in his playing in a very expressive and, and amazing way. He's very good, and he's very he's a very deep feeling person, and that comes through in his playing as well. And then let's see who's after that. Greg Vasso. He he's just he's like solid as a rock. Like like he came in and. After a certain period of time, he want, he wanted to be like like a drum machine, like as far as 
being the backbone of the beat, and he certainly was. But then, at the same time, when it comes time for it to get outside the box and really express, uh, he can definitely lay into that and definitely express as well in a unique and humorous way. Like, like it's interesting, you know, he, he and I have a side project, Depth Quartet, which, unfortunately, you missed out on this year. They They played Friday night Camp Creek, the last Camp Creek. And that band is very unique and experimental and fun and a lot of the rehearsals would end up where me and Vaso would just be laughing hysterically over the way we just played something you know what I mean like there's humor in the music in a, in a way just a really cool thing and then Scott Oshouse is like he's just graceful like he he's he's solid. He's the, he's the lightest player out of all the players. He doesn't he doesn't hit very hard. So when he's playing, I turn him up in the monitor if he's on stage. But he has like this grace to his playing and precision and uh, flair. I I don't know how to I don't know how to describe it. It's very like um, he's got a lot of talent for being able to play a lot of stuff. I guess I don't know how to I don't know how to put it much better than that. And then a carbone is uh, solid as a rock and also super expressive. And he brings kind of a modern sensibility to what we're doing. Um, and carbone's awesome. I love playing with him, and he's super expressive, and he's fun to play off of, and 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 goofy. And we have a we have an amazing time, and he's. The thing about all these drummers is that, is that it's not and, and and any musician in the band it's they bring more to it than what meets the eye. They, it's more than they're playing. It's the attitude that they bring and their, the interaction that they have and and the expressiveness that they have and on and off stage. You know, it's it's just a very it's a very cool thing. Uh, do you have any reflections on Rob Freed and what he contributed? Well, yeah, and then there's Jay, like. Rob is such a creative, interesting guy and interesting player. Like, it was just, he would bring so many things. There was just so many different sounds that were coming out back there, you know. I would hear things and I'd turn around. Like, I remember one night in particular, like, I was hearing this sound, this rhythm coming out, and I turned around and looked, and he was, like, hitting a coal shovel with a spoon. And I'm like, and that's the level of, of, like, creativity and thinking outside the box that he brought to the whole thing. And then when he left us, there was no percussion for a long time until Jay came along. And Jay, Jay kind of came along as like attached to Bill. And it was like, you know, I've got this friend who plays percussion. And it's like, yeah, bring him along. And at first, Jay was very, like, subdued, you know, like, very quiet. and, and But super tasteful. Really liked everything he was doing. And, and as he progressed, like, he came out of his shell. So that now when the peaks hit, like, he starts bashing things back there. And, like, you know, he... You know, like off stage, he's very like, yeah, yeah, everything's cool, man. But then you look back in the middle, he's thinking, he's like, ah, you know, he's got this, got this, whatever. So, right now, it looks like you're pretty consistently playing a Gibson SG guitar, but for many years, you played an Ibanez guitar. Can you tell me about the history of that Ibanez guitar, which has been so instrumental in Max Creek sound over the years, and how it made its way into the band? Sure. Wait a minute, though. Did you mean this guitar right here? Is that what you're talking about? Um, 
I got the amp on back there. I was just teaching a guitar lesson before this. So I was playing a Travis Bean. I don't know if you're familiar with Travis Bean's. In fact, it's right, that's right over there, too. But they're an aluminum neck guitar, which is good in a lot of ways, and it's bad in a lot of ways. One of the ways it's bad is that um, when you put your hand on the guitar and you keep it there for, for a long period of time, it, the aluminum heats up. And then if you put your, guitar, put your hand up here and keep it there for a long time, this part cools down and that part heats up. And so what ends up happening is that the thing drifts out of tune frequently. And so we were about to make record our live album drink the stars and i said i can't i can't deal with with the, trying to keep this thing in tune and so i bought that guitar brand new at Wurlitzer in boston just for the making of drink the stars and then i've modified it a few years later that was in 1981 and then a few years later i modified it i don't know how tech heavy you want to get but essentially I was trying to get more of a strat sound out of it I, I figured out a way to get more of a strat sound out of it and this particular model they only made 84 of there's a lot of them that are similar that they were making before 1981 but there's only 84 of this particular model and so to the Ibanez collectors they're coveted a little bit and so a couple of people I know collect them um, did you know it at the time when you got it that it was that rare or did you learn that later no I didn't know what I was doing. I just went into Worldless for Boston and, and saw that guitar and thought... And I, I had done a minimal amount of research on Ibanez because I knew that Bob Weir was designing guitars with uh, Ibanez, and that's one, of the one, that's one of the models that he influenced. In fact, I have pictures of Garcia playing a similar model, like a prototype of that, and Weir playing a prototype of that. And it was really nice. It sounds really nice, but I wanted to get a Strat sound. So I modified it to get a Strat sound in a very special way that I'm not going to give away the store. But it, but so the people that buy these models, they, they won't make the sounds that this one makes because this one I've rewired in the back a little bit. I should say a, a couple people reached out to me before this interview with some more tech questions. So I'll wade into these questions and, and tell me if they're okay to ask. But sure. why did you then change to the, the SG? What prompted that change? <laughs> Usually, all my gear that any anything I buy that has to do with music, for the studio or for stage gear or anything, is all deductible off my musician's income as an expense. And so, a few years ago, it was like New Year's Eve. We were playing at Toads. We had set up and sound checked, and I was thinking, it's New Year's Eve, and I have not bought enough gear to make my creek income go away. I need more gear. And so I went on to Reverb.com, and I'm thinking to myself, well, what have I always wanted? You know, and I've always wanted an SG. It started like a Chicago Transit Authority, their first album. There's a picture of Terry Kath on the back playing an SG. And he actually doesn't play an SG for the, mo you know, for the most of his Chicago time. But I, saw, I just liked the way the guitar looked. And so I went on Reverb.com and, and found, like scrolling through SGs and I'm like, oh, that one's kind of cool and it's got different pickups than your typical SG does. And I really, really, I just bought it. And I also bought a uh, Gretsch uh, lap steel because I always wanted one of those too. And so the guitar came like a week later or so. And so I set up my rig upstairs in the living room and plugged in the Ibanez and played the Ibanez for a little while to get the feel of it and feel of how it sounds so that I could do a good comparison. And then I plugged in the SG SG played like absolute butter. It was unbelievable. And then I switched it into single coil, excuse me, and it sounded just like the Ibanez in single coil. And so I 
did a couple tests to figure out which pickups were lit up, and it, it had been wired originally the exact same way that I had rewired the Ibanez. Like, it was already set up in a way to get the sounds that I had, you know, rewired the Ibanez to get, so... I started. I started bringing them both to the gig and just playing the SG. And um, eventually, I just stopped bringing the Ibanez to the gig. The SG was like it, it plays like butter. It does that thing that with the stratty, I you know, single coil sound that I get out of the Ibanez. But the other thing that it does is when I go up high, it just sings. And that's kind of the one thing that the Ibanez it kind of does it, but it's not quite there. So. So that's why I, that's why I, I've I've stuck with the SG. It just has a couple things, and I I, I also feel like I, I don't know. I think I think it changes my playing a little bit. I think I play a little edgier with it than I did with the Ibanez. I think, and I like that. Tell me about the sound you're able to create on stage. You know, when you connect your guitar to your pedals and you get your effects in your amp is there an approach to your stage sound that's uniquely you or how do you approach that i guess Hmm. i think i sound like me no matter what like no matter what the effects are no matter what the amp is i think and i think that's true of a lot of people i had a conversation about this with mike gordon where he was playing bass and it was him and david schools from widespread and phil lesh and they were they were like trying the same bass rig and when when they'd switch and the other one would put the bass on it's the same rig but it would sound you know like when phil was playing it sounded like phil and when mike was playing it sounded like mike so i think there's something to be said that players sound like them no matter what rig they play through so all that said my ears are shot (laughs) and so I get what I get a sound that I think that I enjoy and hopefully isn't too tinny for other people to enjoy. There's clean and then there's all the special effects, you know. The special effects are like, okay, how weird can I get? You know what I mean? There's, like I have a this latest pedal is a guitar synthesizer pedal which does all sorts of I use it super sparingly, but it does all sorts of nasty stuff. Is that the C4 synth? I got a question submitted about that actually, if that's what you're talking about. <laughs> yes, that's the C4 synth, but from um Source Audio is the company. They made the C4 synth and they made a batch of like a few hundred and they sold out like immediately. And so I know a guy over there because they're they're right up the street from me in Waltham, and so he always he always invites me over to the warehouse to try out new pedals and stuff like that. And so I saw this C4 synth online. I saw some demos, and I and I'm like, wrote him an email. I got to get this. I got to get one of these. And he said, We have none right now. We've we you know the batch sold out in like days. And then he wrote me back a little while later, and he's like, Well, so you know what? I have the circuits and the boards and everything, but we don't have any of the you know, the actual boxes. I have some hand-painted boxes for the prototypes. If you don't mind a non-official case for it, you know, like a hand-painted case. And he gave me, he sent me a picture of six different things that he had done by hand and written the controls on by hand. And I'm like, all right, yeah, give me one of those. So it's kind of like this bastard C4 pedal that doesn't really exist. (laughs) So I'm curious, um, at this stage in your career, do you enjoy going into the studio to record more or less than you, uh, that experience when you were younger in your career, or is it just different now? Going into the studio and recording is something that I wish I had had the opportunity to do a, a lot more of during my career. So that's why, like, you can't really, 
obviously we're this is audio only, but let me see if I can Oh, I'm getting a tour. This is fun. Yeah, you get a tour. So <laughs> there's key there's multiple keyboards and there's keyboards here and then there's interfaces and rack mountable stuff and mixers and headphones and then back there is uh, well, you can't see it now, but there's an amp back there and, and a rack of guitars. And then that's the other side of the studio. There's a full drum set and there's a bass rig all set up. And so this is like, and I've invested all the money that, well, not all the money that I make, but I've invested a lot of money in just good studio monitors, a good interface and, and a Pro Tools subscription and Ableton Live, you know, the the, the current Ableton Live set up i don't know if you're familiar with with any of these but and logic you know so i have all these daws and so most of it is spent trying to write in the studio i've always written with tape recorders and stuff like that so most of it is focused on writing but then when i write i try to mix and produce and and master tracks and i've released a couple things on spotify but and and amazon and all that stuff Getting to record the the albums with Mike has been an interesting thing too. Not only because I, I you know I'm I'm writing a lot of it with him, but also the studio experience. The last album we hired Sean Everett, who is the producer of the Alabama Shakes Grammy winning albums. Like he he wins Grammys and stuff, and so he came in as a producer and and. You know he's running Pro Tools, which is what I use. You know for for a lot of it, and and to watch him work, and to like the way he works in the studio, like he, what he wants to do is get th- as many things recorded, so that he has this huge palette of stuff to work from. You know, so just an example, like he had me record a rhythm guitar part. It was just a straight rhythm guitar part, and he had it the way he had it recorded is I was plugged into my rig. I was plugged into a, like a 1950s Gibson amplifier. I was plugged directly into the board, and then inside the isolation booth, he had a head, mannequin head with two microphones in the ears, right? And so that's five channels of guitar, and you know, so when he gets into the into the mixing part of it, he's got this whole palette of stuff that he can use to shape just the just the one guitar part. You know what I mean? But it's like the guitar part recorded through nasty tubes, the guitar part recorded through clean tubes, and then a straight guitar sound, and and then he's got the the strumming picking sound of the electric guitar in the control booth. So like when he went, part of the song goes to like an acoustic-y kind of bridge, and so he just turns the guitar amps down, brings up the direct sound and the head microphones, you know, so you can hear the pick going back and forth, and all of a sudden it sounds more acoustic-y, but it's still the same guitar playing the same part. So, you know, like tricks like that, recording tricks like that, it's just so... The technology is completely different, so it changes the whole aspect of recording. Can you tell me what you're working on in your solo career? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because... <laughs> because I, I'm, cause I spend... A, most of my time making music in my in my basement. That's where I make music most of the time. And and in doing that, I try to explore with recording technologies and whatever. And I have released a couple things on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Music, all that stuff. So yeah, there's a couple things out there, and there's more to come. Uh, are you telling me there's an album in your future? I, <laughs> I would love to do an album, but I, I still have more work to do to get the material together but there's a bunch of material yes we should look you up online and i know there's a couple singles that came out a year or two ago see one of them was called autumn i'm going off of memory here 
Oh yeah, so yeah, so you're familiar already with what I've released. And then was it? Oh God, I'm gonna get this wrong. Is it Into the Night or what was the one that came out around Halloween last year? It was uh, yeah, Creatures of the Night, exactly. Creatures of the Night, yeah, that was awesome. That was really cool. I love that one. That was like a total surprise <laughs> when I saw that. Like, what is this? This is cool. Yeah, yeah, that's all done down in the basement down here. Yeah, well, Autumn was actually pretty interesting when I heard that. That is a different direction. Like when I heard that, I was actually caught a little off guard in a good way, right? Because I was not. A maybe expecting that, but it was really cool. Yeah. Well, you know, I try to stay current and by current, like I I try to listen to the stuff from the nineties, you know? And so (laughs) like, I I like Beck and I like, um, I used to listen to this band a lot called Delirium, which is these two guys up in Canada and they do, all they do is electronic music and they, they used to do like ambient electronic stuff, but then they started like, they would record a, uh, an instrumental track and they would ship it off to female singers all around the all around the world really and the each female singer would write and record stuff over the top of it and then they'd release these albums so every album is these two guys playing all the music and a different female vocalist you know that composed the lyrics for each one of those and the lyrics are, are pretty much horrible but the production is pretty awesome and and so it's kind of the dark side. Like I, I like a lot of weird music. Like I don't, I'm, I don't sit down and listen to like a lot of Grateful Dead all the time. You know what I mean? Like I do listen to the Dead, but I listen to a lot of different things, and I'm influenced by a lot of different things. I'm influenced by African music. Fela Kuti is a big influence. When I'm writing, I'm always trying to push the envelope of what style that I'm in, and I can't really play the drums, so most of the time it's going to be electronic drums or drum machines or loops or stuff like that. That's kind of why it goes in those different directions. I'm curious, outside of music, are there ways you express your creativity? Are, are you naturally a creative person and you're doing other things besides music too? Well, I'm a computer scientist. <laughs> I, I am a programmer full-time. I write, you know, I write code. That's an aspect of creativity that it's 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 creative. It does it is a creative outlet in that aspect. And so there's a lot of ways I create music that are different. Like I'm not just a guitar player. You know, I actually started on piano, so there's keyboards all over this place and there's bass right right behind me. There's fretless bass right behind me. I was like I played upright string bass in in string quartets in high school and so and then there's a drum set over there but there's also a mandolin there's a banjo and there's um a turkish baglama saz hanging on my wall in the living room and there's a pedal steel in my office so the music takes up a lot of my creativity especially working full-time and having limited amount of time to actually be creative when i was younger i would draw i used to have an airbrush and i would mess around with the airbrush and stuff but i was never any sort of serious about art or anything like that I don't know if you know this, but I saw you in Milwaukee in 2017 when you were on tour with Mike Gordon at the Paps Theater. I was blown away by you. And that's what introduced this whole Max Creek thing to me is when I I asked my friend who that, who that guitar player is. And we looked you up online and everything else is history. But back in 2017, you had a blog, a blog from the road. And it's it's been a little dusty. There hasn't been any posts for a while. And I'm wondering, are you going to pick up blogging anytime soon again? <laughs> I don't know. I kind of blog privately anyway. Like I have a studio blog where I track everything that I do and I write down everything that I do. It it wouldn't be of any interest to anybody, even if you were a studio geek, because it's just me feeling my way through, you know, trying to learn things or whatever. So 
Um, yeah, the block from the road was cool. Or maybe I could interest you in a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I've thought about doing a podcast, actually. Uh, that's definitely been something that I've considered. You know, and th- another thing that uh, that my wife and I make promotional videos for the, for Max Creek. I don't know if you've seen any any of those that get posted or whatever. But that that's kind of a creative thing where you know we sit down and like, well, what can we do that's outlandish and crazy? And that's definitely a, a creative outlet. And then right before the pandemic actually started, my wife got involved in this thing where she was started taking pictures of sad chairs like on the like you're driving and on the side of the road somebody's got a chair with a free sign on it right and so she started doing this instagram thing the sad chairs on instagram and for the pandemic you know we weren't i wasn't gigging i was working from home we were just home 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 all the time and so we would gas up the car on the weekend and just go driving around looking for sad chairs and taking pictures of sad chairs and so <laughs> so that kind of turned into a very creative thing so i mean it's her thing but i'm de- but i definitely help you know as much as i as i can but but that's kind of a creative thing just the whole aspect of photography which is which is taking on a whole different thing now with with iphone technology and technology of cameras is just amazing you know so so that's a, so i'm creative in that way i guess minimally yeah uh, well, I'll wrap it up with one more question for you. What are you looking forward to most when it comes to Max Creek? <laughs> There's a whole bunch of sarcastic answers that go through my head. That's a tough question. I guess I look forward to to the unknown of what's yet to come. You know, it's been 50 years and well, 49 for me, but all these years playing together has developed this thing that you can't really have with anybody else. You can come close, I guess, maybe, where you can have chemistry with other musicians or whatever, but there's something about this longevity and playing and being with these people for this long um, develops this relationship of ESP, you know, being able to read each other and, and, you know, and it just keeps going. It just keeps going, getting, getting more intense and better and developing into new, you know, going into new places and... So I guess I look forward to more of that, more of the, more of the exploration. All right, Scott, it's been a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you so much for joining me on Hooked on Creek. Oh, it was a blast. And I apologize for the long-winded answers, but uh, it was good. You asked good questions. Yeah, some tough questions. <laughs> you know, like, what does leaves mean? But no, it was a blast. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it a lot. All right, cool. Thank you. Well, I had a lot of fun talking with Scott, and I really hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. Scott was very, very generous with his time, and his participation in this podcast means a lot to me. If you're curious, during the introduction to this episode, I played a portion of Leaves, performed by Max Creek, live at Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island, on November 21st, 2008. And as always, let me know if you have suggestions for future episodes or recommendations on people to interview for this podcast. You can get in touch with me via the contact link on the Hooked on Creek website at hookedoncreek.com or via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Hooked on Creek to get connected. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for tuning in.